Hey guys, welcome back to the Phil Cross Survivor Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today's episode is an exciting episode because it's one of my many passions. But today we're talking about off-road survival rigs. Now, what I mean by off-road survival rigs, that's pretty broad, right? If you're in a survival situation and you have to bug out, a lot of people think about bugging out as a bag or grabbing a bag and then going on foot. Well, primarily, you know, everybody in America has a vehicle, if not two. So when I'm talking about survival, mobility is one of the most important aspects of survival because to either escape danger and get to safety, or if you're bugging out into a rural area, you need to be able to isolate yourself, which is obviously a protective mechanism of survival. So how did I get into off-road anything? Why off-road? I consider myself a subject matter expert in this field, not because I'm a technical driver or a professional driver who you know races Baja or has a lot of experience, particularly in racing or a professional field. I consider myself an expert in this in the overland sense, meaning most of my special operations career was in rural environments, meaning we had to get to the objective via vehicle and whether we are offsetting or rolling it right up to the X or we are just doing overland movements, period, it always involved some type of motor vehicle, period. And most of that time was spent off-road living out of that vehicle. It's an exciting thing for me to talk about off-road uh, survival rigs because, you know, I have a passion for off-road anything because it takes you off the beaten path and it gives you this sense of freedom, this, this physical sense of freedom where you can escape technology you can get away from society and connect with nature and i'm big about that because you know for me transitioning into civilian life hasn't always been the easiest thing because i'm used to traveling overseas i think total i might have six years of overseas travel in the last decade or so and so i've spent most of my time abroad or traveling or in rural environments and now i'm in this densely populated environment where the want and need to escape is always in me. So passionate for that reason, but I'm also passionate for the, the technical operational reason of my experiences in special operations. Our GMVs, our gun trucks, our vehicles that we used in special operations, we could fight from them, live from them, and then travel long distances in them. And so this episode is going to highlight some of those experiences that I've had in the military, but also give you an idea of how you should have your civilian rig built or hooked up. Today's episode is pretty broad, but we're going to be talking about some specific things that are important. So today's episode, we're going to cover a lot of information, so I won't bog you down with a table of contents, but you know everything from off-road capabilities to towing recovery to what you need to have inside of your vehicle to be able to fight. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Again, if you guys got feedback, please feel free to leave me feedback either on the podcast reviews in iTunes and SoundCloud or email me at media at philcraftsurvival.com. My start into off-road everything was obviously as a kid. I loved remote control trucks. I love big trucks, you know, but obviously being a kid, it's just you're a dreamer until you get into a seat of a vehicle. And one of my first vehicles that I, that I owned early on in my military career and as a young adult, period, was a Jeep Wrangler, a 1999 Jeep Wrangler, a Sahara model, which is known as the TJ model. You know, my Sahara 
uh, TJ model, I actually still have this vehicle. It is the only vehicle that I've owned since 1999 that I've never gotten rid of. I've gone through 50 different vehicles, but the Sahara, hopefully one day I could pass that along to my, my child. And it's a vehicle that has some sentimental value to me because it's really the vehicle that I used to escape and to do off-road adventures when I was stationed in North Carolina. So this vehicle, you know, the 99 Sahara model had a Dana 44, which is a beefed up differential, rear axle and differential. And it had the ability, because I installed lockers, it had the ability to crawl or articulate over varied terrain, but even the most technical terrain. And so it was the first time that I was able to navigate through the mountains of North Carolina and get to places that I couldn't normally get with your everyday vehicle. So that really turned me on to the off-road lifestyle community. And I started getting involved in the Jeep community when I was in special operations, when I started off. I remember a funny story uh, when I was in the Q course, I was in language training and you know, language training is a nine to five. It's a little bit more laid back because there's not, you know, smoke sessions. You're not getting yelled at. There's no real pressure because there's no physical pressure. It's all mental pressure, which is a pressure, but it's, it's not that difficult. So during the lunch breaks, we would take off and go into town and get lunch. And me and my buddy, Ben, we decided we wanted to go out town and get lunch and it was raining. And so we took my Jeep and on the way back, you know, we were going to the language lab, which is this big, basically a university where you do language training. And, you know, me and Ben were in French school together. But as we we're driving back, I noticed a muddy trail. And if you've been to North Carolina or been to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, you'll know that there's tank trails all throughout the back roads of Fort Bragg. And these tank trails are meant and set up so that tanks could literally drive through them. Bradleys could literally drive through them, Humvees, etc. And so they're all bogged out. They have, you know, the rut, there's ruts, there's mud, there's washouts. So the terrain is pretty technical when, when you look at it. It's, you know, it's North Carolina mud. And so it's not the best terrain to be crawling over in a vehicle because it will tear your, your vehicle up. I mean, I've bogged, it's called bogging when you're going through mud and sand. And I've, I've done some serious damage to some off-road vehicles because sand and mud will tear a vehicle up. Well, I saw this, this tank trail and I'm like, hey, let's take the tank trail and come out on the other end. And I'm a big believer that if you have an off-road vehicle, you get it dirty and you leave it dirty. I mean, that's kind of like a, a scar or a tattoo. It's like a sign of an experience. And I wanted to go through this back mud trail and get it dirty and then go back to school, go back to class. So we went back there and there was a, a washout, like a puddle. And this water was, it looked pretty deep. And I looked at Ben and he's like, dude, no way. And so he walked up there and he dropped a stick in it. And I remember the stick was pretty deep, but I'm like, man, I have, at the time I had 33 inch tires or a 35 inch tires on it, super swampers. And I'm like, dude, I can get through this. This is no problem. So I gunned it through there, and obviously the point of the story is I didn't get through it. I bogged myself out, and I was stuck in the mud. Well, the problem is, you know, I had a lift. I had, at the time, it was like a four-inch suspension lift, and then I had a two-inch, one to two-inch body lift. So it wasn't a significant lift, but with the 35-inch tires, it was pretty high. And so I bogged out, but the water was up to the floor mats. And I had already pulled the floor mats out. I had no uh, floor mats inside the vehicle. 
and I had the plugs undone so you could drain out. But I was submerged underwater. My differentials, my axles, my drivetrain completely was underwater. And my exhaust was actually underwater. So what I'm thinking, I'm thinking, so if I if I shut this down, then I'm going to get mud sucked up into my intake or into my engine, and it's going to destroy my vehicle. So it's idling. I let it idle. But there's no way I'm getting out of it. So I decided to call my buddy. And this is this is after my lunch break. So I decided I call my buddy, and he's got a, he's got a Nissan. And he shows up with his off-road Nissan, and he tries to pull me out. And he has some recovery stuff. He has a, a toe strap, which is just like a really ruggedized nylon strap. And he's trying to pull me out, and he can't pull me out. My Jeep is stuck. And so we call another buddy of mine, and he's got a Dodge Ram. And he showed up. And same thing, same exact issue. So we finally call the last buddy of mine who had a truck and he shows up and he's got this bungee and it's a CH-47 or a Chinook or a helicopter tow strap. And it's basically used for recovery of picking up equipment. And it had a little bit of a elasticity to it. So it wasn't just a straight piece of nylon or a straight piece of, of tow cordage that had no flexibility. It was basically a rubber band. So I remember both the trucks hooked up on the back of the vehicle and because my wheels were submerged in the mud, it had this suction effect. And so it wasn't coming out. So I put it in neutral and they gunned it while my vehicle was hooked up. And it basically slung shot. I don't know if that's a term. Slung shot my vehicle out of the mud and it was recovered. The only problem was that it did so much damage because of it sucking up mud and water that I just had to leave it there. And so go back to school and we show up late, but we talk French to the instructor and, you know, she gives, she cuts us a break. And so I go back and recover the vehicle, but the vehicle was just destroyed. So I pull the oil plug and mud just pours out of the bottom of it. And I'm like, this is really bad. And so it's crazy. I, I put a garden hose in the top of my engine and this is an inline six. It's a really reliable engine. Flushed it out, did a couple oil changes and then flushed it out again and then changed the oil again, capped it up. And then since then, since that time, which is like 03, 2003, I haven't had any issues with that vehicle. The inline six in that vehicle is still running strong. I want it to blow because I want to be able to utilize another engine. But the lesson learned from that experience is that you have to know the limitations of your, of your off-road vehicle. You can't just start, you know, taking your off-road vehicle that you think's potentially capable and then bog it out and then completely destroy it. There's a lot of research and a lot of understanding now that I do prior. So I know not to end up in that situation. Number one, I should have had a snorkel. Number two, I should have known that with the mud and the tires that I was running, which were super swampers, that it was only going to sling mud and dig me deeper, which it did. So obviously a lot of lessons learned and hopefully we could address some of those today. All right. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is what vehicle do I need to select? What's the best vehicle choice for my lifestyle? Well, generally speaking, I would say that number one, you have to get a vehicle that's off-road capable to the max, but also offers a lot of comfort and allows you to daily drive it reliably. Now, the biggest consideration for you guys for everybody, is more likely price or cost. You can get a $1,500 Jeep Cherokee 
that I utilize in training, in professional training, off-road training, that is bulletproof. Or you can go out and pay $50,000 for a TRD Toyota 4Runner and have the same capabilities, but obviously the Jeep Cherokee is not going to be as comfortable on-road than the Toyota 4Runner. And vice versa, you know, the Jeep Cherokee, you could abuse and beat up. And that 4Runner is a little bit more fragile than that Jeep Cherokee. So it really comes down to cost. And that's the biggest limitation. So when I look at cost, I base it in brackets. For me, you know, I'm not going to sit here and talk about conceptual ideas and theories. I'll tell you exactly what I think you should get. One, I would say the Jeep Cherokee. The Jeep Cherokee is one, the older model Cherokees are one of the most reliable off-road vehicles available. And you can get them again for 1500 bucks. The FJ80s, wonderful vehicles. The Land Cruisers are wonderful vehicles because they're set up with differentials, locking differentials. They're set up with off-road capabilities. KDSS, this kinetic sway bar that unlocks and locks. And that comes factory or stock. The best models, I've talked to buddies from Overland Bound, my buddy Mike, who runs Overland Bound with his wife, they recommend the 1997-1998 FJ80 over the other models. And I concur with that because... The Toyota Land Cruiser is very underpowered in the uh, earlier models. You know, 91, 92, 95, and 97, 98, they put in a larger engine and it was able to power it through. Outside of that bracket, you have a whole slew of different Jeeps, right? You got the CJs, you got the YJs, you got the TJs. These designations are just the designations of the years. You know, like the TJ is like the 1996 to the year 2000. You know, if you ever follow Instagram, the Jeep called Yeti and the wild yellow, they roll around in this TJ. And that's one of the most off-road capable vehicles made. And that's that's what I have. I'm a little partial. It's 1996 to the year 2000. They came in Jeep Wrangler models, which were the subcategories are the Sport, the Sahara, the Rubicon. And they just had different, you know, different options on them. But I would say at a minimum, you want the Sahara or the Rubicon because you want the beefier rear end. And these these Jeeps, I mean, you can get them for anywhere from 3500 to five grand and tricked out for like 10 grand. It's an awesome vehicle. I mean, that's the, that's the Jeep that I recommend if you're going to get it because, you know, there's tons of accessories. It's reasonably priced. You can get used stuff for them. And then you could set it up and build it the way you want where the Jeep can go anywhere. And it's pretty comfortable on road. You know, I have a five-speed 1999 Sahara and the inline six gets it anywhere. And it's pretty comfortable. Outside of that bracket, I stay with Toyota when it comes to this. But outside of that bracket, I would look at the Tacomas. You know, if you guys have seen Back to the Future Part 1, that the Hilux, that old, like 80, you know, mid-80s Toyota Hilux was like one of the best, coolest vehicles around. And they still are. You know, I had a SR5, which was titled as a Hilux. And it was like a mid-80s. I think it was like an 85 awesome capable vehicle a lot of those vehicles they're modifying them and putting a wider wheelbase larger axles and turning them into rock crawlers but even the stock versions of that that led into the tacoma are wonderful vehicles man they i mean they're they're off-road capable they're comfortable they're almost overpowered you know they got good v6s that bulletproof four-cylinder engine and in the category they're in which is probably that 10 grand to 15 grand depending on the year just one of the best pre-owned vehicles that you could really get. I love that vehicle too because it's got a really good resale value. 
I mean, you could buy one right now, run it. It could have 140,000 miles on it and you could sell it for like 15 Gs. I mean, it's insane, the Toyota Tacoma resale value. On the high end, the upper end, right? I obviously am partial because I have one myself of the new Toyota 4Runner. I'm a big fan of the 4Runner. And I did my research prior to going into an SUV that was off-road capable. I have a Dodge 2500 diesel pickup truck, off-road capable, performance, lift. It's pretty much got everything that you could put into a truck, but it's still not as off-road capable as my Toyota 4Runner from the factory. That Toyota 4Runner in 2015, 2016, 2017, they had a trail model. And the trail model came with, you know, obviously 4x4, but it came with the abilities to lock the differential, to put it into 4 low, do a rock crawler setting or rock crawling mode, to be able to get over really any obstacle. Like I remember recently I got stuck and I was in four low, you know, which is a, a more torquier version and uh, locked up differential version of off-road capability. And I got stuck where my wheels were locked up in mud and rocks and slippery surfaces and I couldn't move the wheels. Well, they have a knob at the top that's like a rock crawl mode feature where you could adjust the speed and the only thing you have to do is put it on the setting and it drives on autopilot. And the only thing you do is control the brake. So you got low, medium, high, and you put it in low and it starts making this funky noise because it's, I'm assuming it's torquing or turning out the differential, getting uh, traction and torque like a limited slip differential. It's moving the traction points to where it needs to be. And it literally will crawl or pull itself out of a stuck position. Pretty amazing technology. I mean, the technology is simple, but pretty amazing capabilities these foreigners have. Another awesome thing about the 2015 and 2016 Forerunner is you can get it in the trail model. Now, the trail model is basically the TRD model, but without the TRD flare. I forget the markup. It's somewhere like seven to $9,000 of TRD flare that you get marked up. When I got my trail model, I didn't want leather interior because I got dogs and I'm going to put my pleather seat covers on it. And so I didn't need that. And the TRD doesn't come with KDSS, which is that kinetic sway bar. And I forget the system's name, but it's basically a sway bar that locks on its own. It's like an automatic sway bar lock. And when you're driving on twisties and turnies, which I experience in Nevada and California all the time, I want the ability for a stiff chassis to be able to get through those corners. Well, the TRD didn't have that and the trail did. Well, when you go off road, it automatically dislocks. So then you have basically disconnected sway bars. And so you get all the articulation of the, the tires tucking up, which allows better traction to the wheels and better balance. And so I wanted that KDSS system and the TRD didn't have it. So this year, they don't even have that. They have the TRD additions but they won't have the trail edition. And my thinking is because so many people bought the trail were like, I don't want to pay extra for this essentially crap. I mean, TRD is awesome stuff, but it's just paying for extra stuff. So I got the trail model. And when I got mine, I got mine from Arterio, California, and they hooked me up really good. I mean, what I did was I called them and I said, Hey, I don't want the stock suspension that's on this thing. And you know, I'm a big advocate for aftermarket suspension. You know, there's a whole bunch of restrictions and a whole bunch of things they do when they put on factory suspension and you want to maximize the performance off-road. 
So the first thing I do is modify the suspension the best way I can. I chose to go with an Icon Stage 7, which is really top of the line for suspension. It has upgraded control arms. It has adjustable shocks. It has adjustable spring settings. It's an awesome suspension setup. And you're going to pay a hefty price for this kind of setup. But I got it put under the 100,000-mile warranty, which was like really cool for Toyota to do. I'm a huge fan of Toyota, period. But for them to be able to do that and then roll my wheels and tire combination into it was pretty amazing. So from the factory, you know, I had upgraded suspension, upgraded wheels and tires. I run method racing wheels because they're lightweight. They look aesthetically pleasing. And, you know, I got the blacked out rims. And then I run BF Goodwrench KM2s or the mud terrains. The KM2, and I've had nothing but BF Goodwrench. And usually I run the all-terrain. But this time I decided because I actually live off of a road that has a lot of mud that I was going to choose the mud terrain and the KM2 was going to be the one. So, you know, I got 285s by 70 by 17 and hands down, without a doubt, the best tire I have ever owned. And I don't think I'll ever, ever run a different tire. In fact, when I get my truck back from the shop, I'm probably going to put 18 inch, 17 to 18 inch rims and run KM2s on that as well. So yeah, definitely recommend the KM2s as a upgrade as well. You know, the Toyota 4Runner, to me, is the most off-road capable vehicle with the most comfort. There's other vehicles out there like the Land Cruiser. That's on the high end. We're talking $60,000, $80,000. And it's definitely off-road capable. You know, overseas, working with different U.S. government agencies, I used to roll all the time in a Land Cruiser. And so I have a lot of experience in Land Cruisers, up-armored Land Cruisers, in pretty extreme off-road terrain. And it's an awesome, capable vehicle, but it's just really a little bit too expensive for my taste. I'd rather get a 4Runner at a more reasonable price and then put modifications into it. On the topic of the 4Runner too, there's a whole bunch of different pre-owned 4Runners. I would look at, number one, I would choose Toyota Tacoma 4Runner Land Cruiser over any off-road vehicle even beyond Jeeps, because I think it's just a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more, hey, this isn't my weekend driver and this is my daily driver. You know, when I'm daily driving and shit hits the fan, I want to be able to take that vehicle and go off road and do what I have to do. And so I don't want to, you know, oh crap, my Jeep's sitting in the garage or it's sitting out front of the house because that's what I take on the weekends because it's not comfortable. Choose a vehicle that's comfortable, but then has the off-road capability. You really want to go with comfort first, and you could easily find a off-road capable vehicle that fits your lifestyle. All right, so let's talk about gearing. Gearing is, you know, for guys and girls who don't know what gearing is or gears are, lockers, differentials, when we're talking gears, gears is actually what's referred to as the gears that are in your transmission. And when we refer to gears, that's what we're usually talking about. And when we refer to lockers, we're talking about the differential mechanisms or, or gears inside the differential that allow you to transition traction or power through the axle to the tire. The dumbed down version of it is, you know, you want to be able to have lockers in the front or the rear. And when I got my Jeep, for example, my 99 Sahara, I got Detroit lockers, which is a company or a manufacturer and I got some really good lockers for the rear pumpkin or the rear differential. And so whenever I needed it, it would lock up and transition that power in the rear axle and then put the traction on the ground when I needed it automatically. 
And so you can get that where you could turn it on or when you put it in the four low or where you actively engage it, you could do it with a button. You know, you could do it with a shift lever or a, an automatic electronic button. You know, the Land Cruisers have push button to where it automatically locks it up. And, you know, that requires stopping it, sometimes putting it in neutral, sometimes putting it in four low first. But you really want lockers. Lockers is that extra little bit that you need when terrain starts getting a little hokey, when the mud's a little slick, when the rocks are a little bit uneven, and you need that power transferred to a specific tire. So definitely I re recommend getting a vehicle with lockers, or if you don't have lockers, get an aftermarket set of lockers from one of a hundred companies. So do you need a vehicle that's two-wheel drive or four-wheel drive? Well, that's yeah, a no-brainer for me. I always go with four-wheel drive vehicles. Now, there's a difference between four-wheel drive vehicles and all-wheel drive vehicles. Full-time all-wheel drive vehicles are different than four-wheel drive, and they still have the two-wheel drive capabilities. There's a time and place, right? When you don't need four-wheel drive, you're going to see more economic gas mileage when you're in two-by-four. And you could also get across terrain a little bit better when you're looking for off-road high-speed performance. So recently in New Hampshire, I went to Team O'Neill's, and I've been there a couple of times, but Team O'Neill's is a rally race school where they teach professional rally drivers to race cars and get their licenses. I went there and I went into a course that taught you how to do two-wheel drive vehicles, all-wheel drive vehicles, and front-wheel drive vehicles. And it's all off uneven terrain, and it's in the woods of New Hampshire, and it's an amazing course. But in that course, I learned the capabilities and the limitations of every single setup. And you have to drive each vehicle differently. I will tell you that most off-road capable vehicles that you're seeing racing nowadays are two-wheel drive vehicles. They're rear-wheel drive Baja trucks that are built for speed, and they could use that rear end to be able to manipulate and get them around corners the way they need to. But it also has to do with transfer of power. When you run the power across a drivetrain and you're turning four wheels instead of two, you start to lose power. So it's a power issue. You know, cars are a little bit different, but when you're talking a, a full-size vehicle, a full-size truck SUV, you definitely see a loss of power with a four-wheel drive vehicle. So, you know, there is some, a time and place for that two-wheel drive vehicle, but I always want the ability to put it in two-wheel drive. Most of these off-road vehicles now have the ability on the fly to be able to put it in four-wheel drive. Like my 4Runner, I could drive two-wheel drive, and as long as I'm under, I believe the manual says like 55 miles an hour, I could transfer it into four-wheel drive by just pulling down on a shift lever and put it in, in full-time four-wheel drive. And I use that when I'm going across slick ice or, you know, pretty uneven terrain that might have a traction problem, I'll immediately put in four-wheel drive just as a safety mechanism. So do you want manual or auto? I recommend using automatic transmissions. My first Dodge diesel pickup truck, I had a 5.9 Cummins diesel, and it was a six-speed. And I tell you what, that six-speed was a pain in the ass. If you know the gearing in a full-size diesel pickup truck, especially a quarter ton, you'll know that you have to shift like three times to under 15 miles an hour. So it was just a big pain in the ass. I'd start off in second gear and that lights and everything else going back and forth. It was, it was pretty difficult. Uh, in Afghanistan, all the off-road vehicles that we utilized, most of the British vehicles, like the, the Land Rovers, most of those vehicles were four or five speed vehicles. If you're going over land, 
long distances, it might not be an issue. But if you're commuting anywhere in the city, it becomes a pain in the ass. You'll see a little bit more issues. I mean, a lot more issues with a automatic transmission potentially that are a little bit more devastating than you will a hydraulic or cable type manual transmission. But, you know, to each their own, if it's a, a good truck, if it's a good uh, quality truck like a Toyota, even the Jeeps, you won't see a lot of issues with most of these transmissions. Now, if we're talking diesel trucks, if we're talking uh, Fords and Dodges, they're notorious for different years for having serious issues with the transmissions. But that has more to do with the power and the lack of um, quality build into the transmission than anything else. So yeah, I definitely recommend a automatic transmission. All right, so towing recovery. Towing recovery is really one of the most important elements in off-road travel period. So imagine you're in the middle of Afghanistan on a combat patrol and you're rolling with two vehicles, two Land Rovers, and they're both chopped. They're old Defender Land Rovers. And one of them breaks down. And you didn't plan contingencies, like you didn't plan a recovery operation. And so now you have to burn the vehicle in place and cross load thousands of pounds of gear, radio equipment, all your guys with their guns, their bullets, all their shit. It obviously is a problematic issue. Now, imagine you're doing the same thing, but you're doing it solo on a back trail in the middle of a national forest and you get stuck. How the hell do you get yourself out? Well, you have to have the proper equipment and you have to do pre-planning and understand how to utilize your equipment. You know, in the military, we live by the toe strap and off-road, you know, overland operations. The toe strap is a critical part to two vehicle movements. And we didn't see a lot of use in winches because, you know, at the time being in rural Afghanistan, we had to roll with more than one vehicle. So when you're rolling with a toe strap, you know, it's not only about pulling something out, pulling a vehicle out, but it's also when you pull it out, what do you do? You don't just throw a thermite grenade, even though we want to do that. You don't just throw a thermite grenade on the hood and just let it burn in place. No, you got to tow it out, especially if it has guns and radios and everything else mounted to it. So when you transition to solo off-road expeditions or survival type situations, you have to have the ability to do self-recovery and be self-reliable. So a few things that you need to put in your kit. Obviously, you need to put a toolkit. A toolkit with the tools that are specific for your vehicle are important. You know, get on these forums, look at the model of vehicle, get a little bag, put all the specific, whether it's socket wrenches, socket sets, pliers, all this different stuff you need to have readily available when stuff goes wrong. I would even throw a manual, you know, one of these cheap how-to mechanic manuals inside because, you know, the technical data that you haven't memorized, it's good to have that information readily accessible when things go wrong in the middle of nowhere. And now you gotta depend on yourself. You can't just reference information that you don't have. Start with a toolkit, start with the essentials, and then go into tow recovery. One, I have a winch on almost every vehicle that I own. The minimum power for my winch is 10,000 pounds. Both of my winches are front mounted on my vehicles and I use synthetic cables over metal cables. You know, there's pros and cons for both. I like the synthetic because it's not as dangerous. I've seen some metal cables in rock crawling environments in Colorado do some crazy stuff like dudes breaking those and, you know, the ends of their winch busting through the windshield and almost decapitating dudes. I even went trailing with a whole bunch of guys that were with 
another more recent crew where they had a fatality of a guy who was killed by be getting hit in the head with a snapped wire cable. So I like to use synthetic cables. And you know, when you use synthetic cables, you just got to make sure that you clean them every time you use them. And if you get mud and guck in them, definitely clean them, pull them out and clean them because over time that's going to deteriorate, obviously the fibers in the synthetic cable. You also need to start looking at high lift jacks. A buddy of mine, Mike, who owns a Forerunner as well, always sends me off-road stuff. And the high lift jack, it's not only used, right? Imagine it's a big, essentially a big jack that gets a vehicle lifted. But, you know, you can have a high lift jack mounted on the top of your vehicle, inside your vehicle, whatever. But the high lift jack isn't just used for jacking up a vehicle. It could be used to pull down a vehicle. Say you roll your Wrangler and you're in a position where you, you're by yourself and you can't pull it down. Well, if you have chains and you have that set up, there's techniques that you could use where you could basically build a contraption with chains where you could use the jack and then reverse jack it and pull it back on its tires. And that's pretty amazing. I mean, there's a whole bunch of applications. You could use them as jaws of life by wedging them in windshields. I mean, hopefully you don't find yourself in that situation, but uh, a high lift jack is a, a definitely a must have. Another piece of equipment that I carry for my recovery stuff is a hatchet. You know, if you're clearing debris, if you're making a path outside of recovery, maybe you need to cut down a tree to be able to wedge it underneath the vehicle to be able to get some leverage, whatever it takes. A hatchet is a must have. Number one for survival, but two for definitely for vehicle recovery. The same buddy Mike mentioned to me about using floor mats as a vehicle recovery technique where you, you know, if you're stuck in mud or sand and you can't get traction where you place them underneath the tires or just gives you enough traction to be able to get over something. And that's the same use for the, you know, the, the hatchet or the ax where you cut down wood to get traction, to be able to pull yourself over something, but definitely have the ability, whether it's actual plastic tracks that you, you know, you carry in your vehicle where you could lay them down and get across specific terrain, or it's a big outside the box moment, but you know, you don't want to use your mats and then you have cloth mats and you're like, shit, I should have got the rubber mats, you know, have the rubber mats in there and have them set up. So another item that you want to definitely have is you want to have some kind of receiver hitch or D-ring mounts, something to be able to tie into. You know, you could see these on aftermarket bumpers. Like I have a DeMello off-road bumper that has the D-ring mounts already tied in. And then I have a receiver shackle, which is basically a big D-ring that I could tie into, whether it's toe straps, whether it's chains, whatever it is, I have the ability to pull off the vehicle. And you have to have that mounted on the vehicle or figure out a, a point to where you can mount it. It makes no sense if you have all these toe straps and all this, all this equipment, but you don't have attachment points to be able to hook it up to your vehicle. Also make sure when you're thinking about tow recovery and your tow recovery kit, you have the basics like a flashlight, like flares, like an emergency road kit. You know, if something happens on the road or off the trail, you need to be able to mark your position. You might even need a radio. You know, a radio, whether it's RF, satellite, GSM, whatever it may be, that's like the number one contingency to have in the event that something goes wrong, especially when you get stuck. You know, you might not even get the opportunity to dig yourself out because it might be a pretty crappy situation. Well, you're going to want to notify somebody if there's injuries or if your vehicle is not recoverable. And a radio is like the start point to that. So just think about those things when you're setting up your tow recovery kit. All right, so moving on, you know, it's almost in the same realm of, as recovery, but you want to definitely have an onboard capability to be able to air down and air up your tires. I use the ARB 
air compressor. I actually have it sitting in my Forerunner. My buddy Mike is supposed to hook me up by building a kit for me, like a case system for me, so I could take it mobile. There's there's a few options for mounting a onboard air compressor. And one option is you tie it in, maybe it's in the engine bay if you have room or inside the back compartment if you have room, but tie it into the vehicle, into the batteries and be able to use a longer line to get to the tires. I prefer the portable method because more than likely if I'm using it, I'm using it as a air compressor and I'm blowing air, cleaning out something outside. I at least want that capability. And also I want to be able to air up and air down my tires on the fly and not have to run this big cable. I also additionally want to be able to help people that are around me. You know, if I'm trailing with a buddy, I want to be able to grab that air compressor and move to their vehicle as well. So definitely think about air compressors because it's a game changer when you're looking at traveling off-road and downing the air pressure in your tires so you can get more traction or more surface area and reduce the chances of you ripping your tire or having it come off the rim. You know, some guys run bead locks, right? Bead locks is basically a, a nut system that ties into the rubber of the tire, mounting it, hard mounting it to the rim. Well, you know, there's some applications for that, but most people aren't going to do that because it's hella expensive. And if you're not doing that, if you do go off-road and you're having to navigate across terrain that puts a lot of wear on the sidewalls of your tire, you might want to air down your tires and get more traction and reduce that chance of that happening. So definitely, I mean, it's if for guys who are in the off-road communities, they know that downing your air pressure is like one of the most critical things that you could do. All right, so hardware on the vehicle, bumpers, side skirts, or footsteps, and rear bumper. You know, I run a DeMello front bumper. A front bumper is going to have a integrated winch setup or plate to where you can mount a winch internal to it. You know, some guys run winch plates that are external. I like to run a front bumper. You know, I have a DeMello off-road bumper, but I like to run it with one loop, and the loop protects the radiator of the front of the engine. I also like that setup because I want to be able to push the vehicle against a tree potentially and, you know, be able to use that as an anchor point to pull somebody. You know, I'm a big fan of using heavy, ruggedized front bumpers on all my setups. What I've recently got into because of the terrain that I'm in now is lighting systems. You know, I have Baja, which is the name of the company, Baja Off-Road Lights in the fog lights compartments of my DeMello front bumper and they're amber. And that's good in dust and super good in the snow. It's hella bright, so there's a time and place. But lighting systems, whether it's a, an LED bar light over your bumper or on top of your roof rack, lighting is very important now with the integration of any hardware that's on your, on your vehicle. For side skirts, I definitely run side skirts on any vehicle that I'm using. You know, they call them side steps, side skirts. But the basic gist is it's not just for stepping up into your off-road vehicle. It's also the protection of the fenders, the wheels, the doors, when you do go off-roading. I've been in a lot of situations where if I didn't have that, I would have definitely just gouged the side of my vehicle with a rock. And if you do any kind of off-roading, you know this is like a critical element, is protecting the core of the vehicle. You know, most vehicles that go off-roading, they, they get rid of all the plastic fender flares because if you're rock crawling or doing some serious terrain, you're going to have your vehicle pushed up at different angles on the sides of rocks and boulders 
and you don't want that fairing or that plastic exposed. So definitely get side steps that protect the doors and the fenders. That means they have to be pushed out far enough. You know, they have some cool ones that you use for step ups, but you know, I don't use them for step ups. I use them for protection. When you're looking at the rear bumper, you want to choose a rear bumper that best suits your vehicle. And you know, you can go down a rabbit hole with this. Right now, I'm actually, it's funny, but right now I'm actually in a position right now to hopefully tomorrow pick up my CBI off-road rear bumper. And it's a rear bumper that has, you know, dual swing arms, which, you know, it opens up and swings out and you have two sides of it. One of the swing arms retains the spare tire. So it removes it from the bottom of the vehicle and moves it to the back. So you have one side that has that. And on that back side of it, when you open it up, it has a table that folds down. Well, on the other side, it has a table that folds down as well. On the outside of that, it has a place where you could put jerry cans. If you do overland movements, having the ability to refuel your vehicle or have a source of water is super critical in an overland expedition. You know, guys who do overland expeditions and even North America, you could wind up in positions where you're driving hundreds of miles in the middle of nowhere and not a gas station in sight. So having that capability is awesome. On that left side that opens up as well, you have a place for a high lift jack, a shovel, an axe. It's a super cool setup made by CBI. Totally in love with this setup. I definitely recommend it. Again, I'm a utilitarian. I like the utility of things. And if I'm going to run a rear bumper, I'm going to have the ability to move all the stuff that's typically inside the vehicle or on the vehicle and push it to the outside. For roof racks, I have a Gobi roof rack. There's a whole bunch of roof racks. I don't know the names of them all. There's Baja, there's Gobi, but I use the Gobi roof rack and it works for me. If I got the, there's the Ranger and the Stealth model. I have the Stealth model. It's super flat and runs the entire length of the top of the vehicle. The reason I run that setup is because I want the ability to mount a roof tent, but I also want space on my roof rack to mount external boxes. Underneath my vehicle, I run a skid plate and you can get crazy with skid plates. I have a skid plate that protects the bottom of the engine and the transmission, and you can get them all over the place. I mean, you can get them from RCI, I believe is the name of the company that I used. They're in Colorado, but you can get them all the way down the length of your vehicle. If you're doing any kind of rock crawling, you know, the Forerunner doesn't have the best ground clearance. So you're going to scrape the bottom of it. In fact, I was in Arizona, I believe, and I was doing some off-road stuff by myself with Pearl, my dog, and totally not even expecting it would happen. Boulder came up on me and just completely just scraped the bottom of my vehicle. And if I didn't have that skid plate, it could have been the denting of the bottom of my oil pan which obviously is catastrophic and could lead to bigger issues later on. So yeah, definitely run skid plates on the bottom. Protect your vehicle full circle. If you have an off-road vehicle, you're definitely going to want to use it full circle and protect it in every single way you can. All right, guys, we're at 44 minutes and 22 seconds. That's crazy. There's a lot of information to put out and I'm making this part one of the off-road survival rick which is awesome i love this topic uh, next episode we'll be talking about what's the loadout that i need in my vehicle i'll tell you about some considerations that i use in the military for overland movements so you could do the comparison and then we'll also talk about hey how do i fight for my vehicle you know aaron baruga a good buddy of mine who teaches in california teaches some good vehicle courses i obviously recommend him but he pops in my head when it, when i think about vehicles because he teaches vehicle dynamics 
and you have to work and operate out of your vehicle whether it's survival or defense tactics to understand kind of the the ergonomics of how your vehicle and you blend or operate hey again you guys can check us out at philcraftsurvival.com our social media handles on instagram are soft survivor and philcraft survival if you have questions again or feedback please hit us up at media at philcraftsurvival.com again thanks for the support guys until next time stay alert stay alive <laughs>